house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. phenomena that determine the course of our lives. These forces begin long before we are born and continue after we perish. Our lives are not our own. We are bound to others, past and present. And by each crime, And every kindness may birth our future. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows you've got to love the pain of watching late-era Robert Zemeckis movies. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here as always with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hey! Hi! Hello. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Are no. you saying hello across many different time periods? I, I am. I am saying it across many different um, nationalities. Are you now a Maori? Are you now a future Korean? Are you now a... Uh, I am now a Jellicle. A j- <laughs> Our final form. Humanity's <laughs> final form. The Jellicle, as we all know. Yes. No cat spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. And you have. We are speaking truly across a gulf far more vast than the time periods mm-hmm. that ex- that we experience in this movie. We are Joe speaking is together. Talking to us from the 1832 of having not seen cats. <laughs> That's right. I am in the 2044. You are fully off world, listening to Grampy uh, Tom Hanks tell mm-hmm. you about. The in ma- majesty layer. of cats. Yes, that is the actual heavy side layer. This movie ends. The true, the true is that cats has been received quite as we have been expected. <laughs> the true true is that Cats is the meow meow of uh, of something. I don't know. I can't I But can't it's take totally it. false false that <laughs> like it is this <laughs> universally reviled thing. Whatever the Rotten Tomato score is now, just know that our system is broken of pass-fail. <laughs> Cats doesn't behave along tomatoes. a binary of thumbs up, thumbs down. Get out of here. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I say that having not seen it. It's fine. I'll be the last person to see fucking cats. I'll go all the way to Buffalo just to see it with you, buddy. <laughs> no, I'm seeing it with my sisters. They're just busy with friends and parties and the holidays. Whatever. Priorities, ladies. Okay, so this week, Chris, we are uh, coming at you with the winner of our listener's choice holiday edition we thought for a christmas present since this wait is this the one that comes out this is the one that comes out on no joseph happy new year sorry happy new year everybody i am forever unstuck in time much like uh, a lot of cloud atlas much like cloud atlas joseph is um in buffalo right now and on a different timeline where it is um uh summer or something i am here um in the future uh, where it's New Year's Eve, apparently. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. Anyway, we wanted to do a, another listener's choice option for you, so we took it to Twitter. Chris, you are our Twitter 
uh, Maven, our Twitter. Um, for the uh, most abbess, part, you're yes. the you're the yes. abbess of our of our Twitter. You're the Susan Sarandon. Mm-hmm. I prefer in- the term Dauphin. <laughs> sure. Yes. So um, yeah, tell us about the how the the listener's choice went. So okay, so we gave you guys four options this time. This is the third time we've done this. We did it for our 2003 miniseries. We did it for our 50th episode, and then we did it for this our 75th movie we've ever discussed. I'm sure. I'm so guessing, many. If you're guessing a trend, you can probably expect one for our hundredth episode. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe we will have something that we have been promising for a very long time for that. We do not plan that far ahead. Anyway, we gave you all the options of obviously Cloud Atlas, The Shipping News, In Her Shoes, and White Oleander. Now, when we were planning these four, we tried to give like kind of a variance in like not just what we could talk about, but the type of movies, the type of listeners we think that we attract, because like we know we get you guys across like a spectrum yeah. of people who do follow Oscar, don't follow right. Oscar, all of that. But we wanted um, to have a selection of movies that you guys have had tweeted at us about in somewhat yes. decent numbers. I feel like feel like there'd been a lot of chatter about all four of these movies at di- at different times. Definitely, that like they've gotten a high number of requests, and we should probably say we will eventually do all four of I these. I can't movies. imagine we wouldn't do and uh, eventually all four of them. Like we're yeah. dying to and do, and maybe all of some them. more sooner than others. But um, so like Cloud Atlas is the one that won, and I think our anticipation when we were kind of spitballing these would be that it would be kind of a fight to the death between In Her Shoes and White Oleander. Yes. And it ended up really being like Cloud Atlas was like way far ahead in front. And that was kind of like my gut. As soon as I tweeted that poll, I was like, Cloud Atlas is going to win. Yeah. And um, sure because did. I'd like thrown out the title so like people could prepare and like think thoughtfully about their vote. Please do that in 2020 as well. Um, no, just vote the Democrat. Don't you don't don't think about it like at all. You know, same thing, same thing. Um, that's what I meant. Um, but <laughs> we did get a lot of very vocal uh, in her shoes fans rallying at the last minute. There because, was like, there was it a had rally. a it had a shot. It had a shot of overtaking Cloud. The other two were pretty end, distant. I will say the the yeah. the white oleander supporters. You might want to take a meeting or something like that, have a bake sale, do something, because yeah. you're flagging. Get it together. Don't be Get the Kamala together. Harris of the next Listener's Choice When we, we announced do. the titles, they were definitely the most vocal, so like that was just like clearly a vocal minority, I guess. The shipping news, it, it kind of bummed me out to see it do so low, though there were actually a lot of vocal people wanting that. Yes, we will absolutely. Again, we'll do all these movies. We're going to do all these ones. I, I learned so much more about the shipping news this time around that, like, oh, we've got to do that this time. Like, I actually, like, watched the trailer for the first time in a decade or more, and I found out who there was, like, there's people in this movie I didn't even realize. Like, there's a whole lot going on. I really want to do the show. Oh, yeah. I do, the picture I tweeted had, what was it, like, Scott Bear in it, and you... Oh, Jason Bear from Roswell. Down. Yes. Oh, Scott, my God. Who's the other one that was in Felicity that his name was Scott? Scott Maybe Speedman. show. Scott You're thinking Speedman. of Scott, Scott Speedman. Yeah, different guy. Also um, a werewolf in uh, other things. I don't know why I said yeah. also werewolf. He's Jason a werewolf in the werewolf. shipping news. Did yes. you know the shipping news is about werewolves? <laughs> I do now. Um, 
cool. Everybody's a werewolf except Judy Dench. Um, Who's a cat. I Okay, the thing about the shipping news, I don't think people know anymore what the shipping news is, or it's like maybe it pulled so low because like people who don't follow the Oscar race or haven't in a long time. Right. Haven't. Whenever we do the shipping news, trust we will make it an education. It is the most Miramax movie that ever Miramax. Truthfully so. Absolutely. And it was... Like the front runner, we can't get bogged down talking about the shipping news. But honestly, anyway, we will get to it. We will get to it. Your winner is Cloud Atlas. So, Cloud Atlas, and we are very happy to talk about Cloud Atlas. Here's the thing: we both really like Cloud Atlas, so it's not like we, we were sad really at all like Cloud that Cloud Atlas. Atlas had won. We're just a little surprised, is all. But you know what? I'm not we- fully surprised. I'm not fully surprised. As soon as I saw it doing so well in the poll, I also realized. Oh, our listeners are trying to pull one over on us, and they know we're going to have to do a 60-second plot description. We're going to have to try to get this under two hours. I don't know, but I don't know who this we is you're talking about, because you're going to have to have to do a 60-second plot description. I think I that's only fair, because I'm so pretty. terrible at the 60-second plot description, and this is probably the most difficult task. I feel like I have to rise to the occasion... And do it well. I think you can do it. Before we get there, I want to just lay out the basics about this movie. We are talking about the 2012 movie Cloud Atlas, directed by Lillian Lana Wachowski and also Tom Tickver. Written by Lillian Lana Wachowski and Tom Tickver, adapted from the novel by David Mitchell. The very, very popular novel by David Mitchell. We'll talk about that soon enough. Starring... Tom Hanks, Holly Berry, Jim Broadbent, Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving, Ben Wishaw, James Darcy, Duna Bay, David Giassi, Jim Sturgis, Zhu Zun, Keith David, and Keith David rolls. Susan Sarandon. Keith David's the best. I love Keith David. We can have a little talk about that. My favorite thing, Keith David has one line reading in his entire career that rises fully above everything else, and I wonder if you know the one I'm talking about. It's in Cloud Atlas or not in Cloud it Atlas? It is not in Cloud Atlas. Unfortunately, he doesn't get a whole lot of like really great stuff to do. He has a, one really good set of scenes with Holly Berry in the 1970s Louisa Ray section. Yeah. But otherwise, he's just he's a character actor. He's like the ult, the ultimate character actor. And the fact that there's another actor named David Keith is like so perfect because it's like that's exactly right for Keith David that he should be just anonymous enough that you don't quite know if you're saying his name in the right order. It's that perfect. <laughs> but he's not anonymous because he shows up in this movie and I like I I I'm sure I'm the only one who's going full homosexual for this heterosexual man where I'm screaming like yes Keith David at the screen as <laughs> he's soon great as he shows up he's wonderful no but the line that's going to be on his tombstone I swear to I swear to God the line that it's like, from like a raunchy comedy I know that of he's course in, like, it's a from a raunchy comedy, comedy and it he is. does something fully iconic in it it is it's from something about Mary and the line is is it the Frank or the beans. Is it the Frank or the Beans? It's so fucking funny when he does that. It's like a full-on, like, there's pandemonium around him, and all of a sudden he just, like, very conspiratorially just leans in. And that movie is it the Frank or the Beans? owes, because that movie was huge. It was like a $200 million yeah. movie. Yeah. It owes at least 50 to $75 million of its gross to him in that line reading. Yeah. 
It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's what it, it's my favorite thing that happens to a character actor is when they do one little thing so perfectly that you still might not ever learn their name, but they like live on forever in just that little bit. It's like Ned Ryerson for Stephen Tobolowsky. Like Stephen Tobolowsky's actually done a really good job of like capitalizing the, on that. And like if you like for a while there, you had that podcast. I don't think they still do that podcast, right? Um, but like for a while there, like you knew Stephen Tobolowsky's name, which was like kind of a miracle. But even if that never happened, he would live forever in the person of Ned Ryerson. And I think that's everything that a character or actor wants is that like one character. It's like Vincent Schiavelli would always, always, always be, and may he rest because he has now passed. He's always going to be get off my train from Ghost to me. You know what I mean? It's just like forever yeah. and ever. I don't know. I've taken us off on a tangent. It's a really Keith big Keith David's cast. a blessing on this earth. Keith David is an angel on earth and we love him. Uh, Cloud Atlas premiered first at the Toronto International Film Festival world premiere on September 8th, 2012. Can you imagine? I'm trying not to hit my desk yes, talking don't about hit this. The we mic. talk about TIFF <laughs> so much. I know. Could you imagine? Like, first of all, it's so like miraculous imagining this movie even mm-hmm. existing. Mm-hmm. But to go to a mm-hmm. major film festival and like kicking off its whole Imagine seeing thing. this movie at 9.30 in the morning. God! <laughs> like, just imagine it. Oh. I mean, it would be the movie that, like, you either break your schedule or right. make your schedule to see because it's just, like, there's fully nothing like there's nothing and it would like be, this movie. It, it would have been so divisive. It was so divisive at the time. Like, so many people would have walked out of that thing been like, it's garbage, it's crap, whatever. And, like... And they did. And they did. And they did when it opened. And, and I... And people also said the exact opposite. Absolutely. And then it opened... Um, a little over a month later, a month and a half later, October 26, 2012, I first saw this movie the day of Hurricane Sandy. It was, we knew that everything was going to shut down. And so I went and I watched a matinee oh, of right. Cloud Atlas. And then I went to the supermarket that had insanely long lines and I stocked up on whatever groceries we needed. And then I went home to ride out Hurricane Sandy. And it was. The whole day of it all was so incredibly surreal because, like, I walked out of Cloud Atlas <laughs> and, like, still not quite sure knowing what my opinion of it was, but knowing that, like, two or three things solidly moved me in a way that, like, stuck with me. And then having mm-hmm. to sort of rip myself out of that space and get into hurricane space where, like, we were, you know, we knew, you know, we knew the shit was coming and my apartment didn't blackout but it was like nine blocks north of the line the sort of like blackout line in the city Mm -hmm. so we had like you know our bathtub was full of full up with water because you didn't know whether you'd end up needing water and like that whole thing all the precautions that they tell you to take and having all of that along with watching cloud atlas this like real end of the world apocalypse sense felt very very real and yeah it was quite a day Ugh. I remember seeing it. We saw it like opening night and we Did went you? with like friends and it was fully dead because we saw it at like a college campus theater. But it's like this one theater is like cavernous and that's the theater that it was in. So we were watching it on this huge screen with like Mm-hmm. five other people <laughs> yeah my my screening was very very empty this movie did not make very much money um certainly not compared to the budget of it which was all 
raised independently. Like, this was a lot of people's it's own crazy. personal money. They got a lot of money from, like, other countries. The German government? Right. It was, like, a $140 million independent movie. It's, you know, honestly, good for Germany. Germany's really, like, pulled <laughs> through in the last ten years, and this is going on their I have a message for side. Germany. What's that? Thank you for Cloud Atlas. Yeah, thank you for Cloud Atlas and Angela <laughs> Merkel and, I don't know, half of my friends' weird sex trips to Berlin lately. Like, good for oh, you, wow. Germany. I don't know. Fantastic. I always assume people who go to Berlin spend their entirety there, like, chained to a wall in a sex club, and I will not be proven otherwise until, like, I don't know, I just won't be convinced. Sorry, prove me, prove I don't me need, wrong, gay America. I don't need that when I have Cloud Atlas. Exactly. Um, Chris, speaking of oh torture that feels so good, um, I'm going to ask you to give us a 60-second plot description of the film Cloud Atlas. I think we're giving our listeners what they want in me. <laughs> yeah. And you really, really I'm having to work for the 60 it. 60-second plot description. I, I will say, listeners, I'm going to put this out on Front Street. Before we started recording, I gave Chris the option that if he wanted 90 seconds to do this, I would ha- I would give that to him as a special dispensation. And he, hero that he is, declined it because he has a plan, apparently. I don't have a plan. I just okay. I, I, I have like a strategy in my mind of how okay. I could do this to the best of my ability. Let's hope I don't get hung up on bullshit that doesn't matter. <laughs> I Problem can't imagine Cloud how Atlas that could is possibly everything be. matters. Like everything matters in this. Everything hours. is connected. We learned that from the trailer, which we'll talk about at length as soon as you get done with the sixty second plot description. Are you ready, Chris? Yes, I just took a deep breath. All right. Remember, spent plenty of time on Halle Berry as a Maori person who we see for, like, all of two seconds. Ready? And go. Okay, Cloud Atlas is a city much like San Francisco. It takes place over six timelines, and they're all various stories of um, uh, civil injustice overcome uh, through, like, love and togetherness and, like, the triumph of the human spirit. It first takes place in uh, 1849. You have Jim Jim Sturgis as Adam Ewing. He uh, works on a boat where there is a black stowaway, um, and then he ends up becoming an abolitionist. In 1936, uh, Ben Wishaw is a gay... Poser who is getting um, uh, uh, his work um, taken over by Jim Broadbent. But later in 2012, Jim Broadbent is Timothy Cavendish, who is an old man who is um, uh, taken in uh, against his auspices uh, and abused as an elderly man. Meanwhile, back in 1973, Holly Berry is an Afro-Latina journalist named Louisa Ray. Did you just say 10 seconds? Yes. Ah, 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 becomes a uh, revolutionary in 2000, and, uh, oh, and then Tom Hanks does the true, true. Tom Hanks does know the true, true. The true, true of that whole thing is 60 seconds to do the plot of Cloud Atlas is impossible. I, I was also going to trying. end it by saying race, taste, and history finally. <laughs> <laughs> race, taste, and history are finally overcome on a planet that is not Earth. Because it all ends on some new planet 
that Tom Hanks and Halle Berry finally go to. Can I just say, after watching this movie, I really, really, really wanted to see Halle Berry and Tom Hanks make other movies together. Whether and they babies. be romantic comedies, romantic drama, something like that. I thought they had really good chemistry together in all of their different time periods. In the 70s with Louis Ray and He's the Scientist, especially in the... They really, like, carried that, like, future pigeon you know They're language both really kind of thing good together. actors of like working with their scene partners to develop chemistry and i don't think we talk about that for either of them enough yeah yeah and it's like there's something about the casting of this movie where it's like they cast whoever they could get their budget for yeah like, this basically. movie probably exists because Holly Berry and Tom Hanks said yes, right? Oh, well, yeah, and if you... And it, maybe to a certain extent, Duna Bay, because she'd already had The Host, which at the time was the biggest movie in South Korea ever. Right, if you Shout if you read into the production history of this, and the fraught production where they kept getting funding pulled out from under them, because none of the studios who they were talking to ever really had a lot of confidence in them, and they had to end up, you know, financing most of it themselves, and as we, as we mentioned, but that at every turn... Where like financing would like fall out from under them. Tom Hanks would be there and just be like, "You guys were doing this. Like we're just gonna do this." And he would rally. They said at at points where the cast seemed unsure of whether they wanted to like sign on to this, that like Hanks would be like, "Well, I'm on the plane headed to the location," and then like everybody would just like follow suit because if Hanks was doing it, like everybody's doing mm-hmm. it, and it just sounded like he was, you know, not the savior of this production, but certainly just like the guy with the most clout in the room and he knew it and he was just like well listen like if you know if i lead other people will follow and hopefully the money will be there and he just sounds like i mean more excuses to just be like tom hanks sounds like the best guy and he just the best human being he really does he seemed to be like he said this he's been quoted as saying that like this is one of the few movies of his that he'll watch again and again he just seemed to really be like into whatever vision the wachowskis and tom tickver had for this movie so and like the other thing about like the star power making this movie happen and getting the financing independently, it feels like it happened at exactly the last moment it could have happened because I don't think any assemblage of stars could make this movie happen now well, to the even... level that it did. Like, how are they going to get? over a hundred million dollars to make this movie for right. any star like tom hanks probably wouldn't pull that money now yeah i mean probably I not maybe i'm being cynical no i mean i don't think you're not, you're being cynical i think i think they would still have to jump through a lot of those same hoops i my hope is that like someone and then maybe now that like you know netflix has the deep pockets or whatever i could see them financing something like this um I don't know. I mean, the Wachowskis are I mean, to I could more see Matrix this movies. as like a limited series or a series that's not as yeah. good as the movie is. No, I don't think this. I don't. I, you're, I think you're right about that. I think. I uh, think a lot of that, like stress and like the condensing down of the narrative, makes the movie better. Well, and also just the fact that it seems too big to be encompassed. Like it seems. It mm-hmm. seems like it's pressing on its own boundaries. I think is part of the reason why it has this specific energy about it. The fact that, like, it jumps between different storylines sometimes too quickly. Sometimes you feel like you haven't gotten 
enough sort of like ground beneath your feet with one storyline before it jumps to the to the other. Sometimes it takes like it takes its time, and then sometimes mm-hmm. it feels like it's crafting one scene by pulling from like two or three different storylines to like mm-hmm. you know this is when we're going to do an action moment for like two or three of these stories or this is what we're going to do like you know because i didn't a, a really say in the 60 second sort of plot moment. description like each of these six stories with a few exceptions everybody shows up in every single one playing a different type of character right even sometimes it's very small and sometimes it's you know a little bit of like a a middle kind of a role. Well, so this is what yeah. I, I mentioned that we should, I'd like to go through this movie sort of like narrative by narrative, because like, even though the movie does cross between, and I think the idea of the movie is that like we, that spirits sort of evolve and move through different time periods and different, um, you know, iterations. I think there's this, the, the sense A different that, type of conflict that's essentially the same, like, struggle of the soul that like over lifetimes you can overcome right right and they talked about and i think that's the reason why they were very adamant that despite the sort of uh misgivings that people might have and a lot of viewers and critics did about you know white people playing asian characters and you know uh all these different sort of like everybody sort of like stepping out of their own sort of racial and sometimes gender identity to play different roles. And of course, now all of that makes, I said, I said Cloud Atlas makes so much more sense in the light of Sense8 than almost anything else, because mm-hmm. um, you really get, I think Sense8 really like underlines a lot of what the Wachowskis were pulling from Cloud Atlas. Now, obviously this is not their story. They did not write this, but like the way that they presented the kind of, you know, the the way the stories melted into each other and the characters sort of exist through different time periods um, all felt very necessary to them. I don't think this was just like a whim where they'd be like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to see Halle Berry dressed up like a Asian man in Future Soul or whatever. But like, no, mm-hmm. it's like there's there's a purpose to all of it. And... It's not the most sort of like tidy or comfortable thing, but I think it shakes you from what any kind of complacency and really makes you like think about it and like why? Why did they do this? Why did they make this decision? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always exactly work. Sometimes the the sort of, you know, the the incongruity of it is too much. Sometimes it it you know, the center doesn't hold. Um but when it works and when it comes together, and I think the music is a big part of that, too, it really comes together. Do you want to talk about the trailer before we talk about the different time periods or after? I think we should talk about the trailer because I think if we we're... I think we're going to spend probably, because we love this movie and there's so much movie to talk about, yes. that we'll probably spend most of the time talking about the movie. And I think the trailer is a good avenue to at least have the Oscar conversation part of it. I agree. So the trailer because drops I in, think like, a lot of that was birthed from the trailer and then it premiering at TIFF. And the book. I think those are the three sort yeah. of, like, tentacles like, to why this had Oscar buzz. Because, like, the Wachowskis weren't really Oscar players. The Matrix did very well in terms of a... The Matrix was one of those technical marvels that actually, like took editing as well. I think every once in a while you'll see one of those where, like, a movie is such yeah. a great visual effects and sound 
movie. We've talked about this before, that it totally, if we were looking at an Oscar 10 at that time, it absolutely would have been a Best Picture nominee. And, like, that's a movie that would have been considered very differently, like, for Oscar culture now than Agreed. at the time in 1999. But then subsequently, like, you know, after Speed Racer, after, I know they didn't direct V for Vendetta, but, like, V for Vendetta... You know, the more time, the more time passes, the more that movie seems like it was theirs. And um, that's another thing that's interesting is that like Natalie Portman was the person who introduced the Wachowskis to the book uh, Cloud mm-hmm. Atlas, and for the longest time she was attached to. She wanted to make this movie. She wanted to be Sanmi Four Five One, which like I think that would have been. That would have been maybe the the one straw too many kind of a thing to like. To I mean, have... maybe Sonmi would have been white, but like sure. And honestly, and it's still again. I think there's their concept still holds. Um, I also I... think that this movie is better for having the star level that it has. I think having yes. one more megastar in this movie would have tilted it. Too much. Uh, the other other actors who were almost in this, by the way, while we're on this subject, um, Ian McKellen, who I imagine would have played the Broadbent roles. Yeah. Or perhaps, I guess he also could have played the, um, I guess, the Hugh Grant roles. I know Hugh Grant was the last person to Possibly join the Hugo cast. Weaving. Possibly. But, like, Hugo Although, Weaving was never not going to be I was going to say, Hugo Weaving is playing the... Uh, Hugo Weaving in a Wachowskis movie role, or uh, you know what I mean? Like that's always yeah. that seems to be their conception. Their conception yeah. of like villainy just has his face on it. Um, but also, which is why I'm like Matrix Four. Uh-huh. The Hugo Weaving replacement is gonna be Jonathan Groff. Oh, that's I'm interesting. Telling, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. That's what it's gonna but be. But the other actor who was attached to this. Uh, for a while and then couldn't do it was James McAvoy. Now, I feel like you could say that McAvoy would have been a fit for the Ben Wishaw role, but... I think he was probably Sturgis. Oh, that actually makes a ton of sense, too, actually, now that you now that you mention it. I was going to say if they had put him in the James Darcy role, then we could finally realize my long-term dream of James McAvoy and Ben Wishaw starring in a Richard Curtis romantic comedy, a gay romantic comedy, um, which is like yeah. all I ever want out of the movie industry. Like once that happens, I can honestly retire. I don't care how much money I have or if I'm comfortable or whatever. <laughs> I'm just going to stop because like that is what I want out of the movie industry. You're right though about the Sturgis thing. I think that makes a lot more sense. Anyway, the trailer drops anyway. in July. Five and a half minute long. It like laughs Comic-Con, in the face right? of trailers. What's that? Comic Con, right? Was it? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I just it remember it being Comic-Con like and it, it was just around it was that there time. on a day. It was like a weekday. I remember that because I remember being at work and like yeah. shutting the door to my office and just being like because like I didn't really I didn't know what Cloud Atlas the book was. You know me in books, um, right? So all of a sudden this like trailer drops and I know that like other people have a lot of like expectations because of the book and i see the length and i'm like the balls the balls on this trailer that you're going to be five and a half minutes and then it's so it's essentially in three parts where the first part my dear sixsmith i am in desperate need of your help i got hooked on a journal written in 1849 by a dying lawyer during a voyage from a pacific isle to san francisco half the book is missing it's completely killing me a half-finished book is, after all, a half-finished love affair. Scored by 
the actual score for the movie, which was, um, wait, reminds me who the, uh, it's Tickver and... It's three people credited to the score. I imagine they did various different things. You also have Reinhold Heil and That's John who I was thinking. Yes. Um, thank you for coming through when I couldn't because I am what? A dum-dum. So... That's the first third of the trailer. The middle third is a sort of, like, standard, like, accelerating action trailer music, which I kind of love, but, like, it's fairly anonymous. And then the last third of it is M83's uh, outro track from their, their at the time, most recent Yesterday, I believed I would never have done what I did today. I feel like something important has happened to me. Is this possible? I just met her, and yet I have fallen in love with Louisa Ray. Saving me twice, baby. You fall, I'll catch you. And it is. And that would end up being in 8 billion different trailers and, and movies and TV shows. And it was, like, the most used sort of, like, instrumental track. Because it is, like, it is, like, grabs your heart and, like, throws it across the room, rousing. It's just, like, so... Uh, the greatest it's trailer it's ever. The best, it's the best ever. movie trailer ever. It is, I always say, the best live-action short film of 2012. It's so... Good. I don't know. What was your in, what was your initial reaction when you aside first saw it? from watching it probably just on a loop for two hours? <laughs> yeah. I immediately went out and got the book and read the book. And okay, so I because I knew book. I knew I, at this point I had known of Cloud Atlas as a property sure. because like at this point like on top of the Oscar thing like this is like that's why I brought up Comic Con because it was like the height of like Comic Con when it was like all the nerd sites would like digest all of these things. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's like I knew that this was a long gestating project, and so I immediately watched it and watched it and watched it and watched it when that trailer happened. So according to Wikipedia, the trailer was just released. It doesn't say anything about uh, Comic Con. So. If that was the case... This was probably around the time that Warner Brothers actually picked it up to distribute in the States. Right, right. Um, it's just... And it's one of those things where, like, as the year went on, I would watch it more and more. There's always, like, that one trailer that you just, like, watch. It's The Cats trailer was that this year, right? Where it's just <laughs> like, oh, I don't have anything to do for a few minutes. I'm just going to watch the Cloud Atlas trailer. And It is about to be... The Woman in the Window trailer. Uh, that's a good trailer. That came out today, listeners. That came out just earlier today as we are recording this episode. It came out today. I lost my voice screaming. <laughs> it did take a movie. We had talked about this when Katie Rich was on the uh, podcast when we were talking about Pan. We were talking about Joe Wright. And we all were like very pessimistic about this movie because you know, the author of the book had been you know, revealed to be a fraud and the whole thing seems very like rip-off of Rear Window and then it got pushed to next year and nobody thought that that was an indication of anything but bad stuff. <laughs> now we have these quotes from Tracy Letts where he was like, <laughs> yes. they hired me and then they completely rewrote it. I have no idea what the fuck's going on with that movie. <laughs> uh, 
Tracy God Letts, bless a Tracy Letts quote. Tracy Letts seems like the best person to talk to. Like I, it's, the best person, the yeah. best married couple. They are yes, him and Carrie like Coon. it has been Tom and Rita for a long time that like if they split up, like my concept <laughs> of love is destroyed, fully destroyed, and now it's fucking Carrie and Tracy. They're fantastic. They're, They're fantastic. fantastic. Anyway, anyway. Um, wait, backing up. Tracy Letts, Woman in the Window. Right. Um, trailers. That trailer Flat just looks good. Trailer. All of a sudden, Jennifer Jason Lee is showing up all single white female as fuck. And like. No IMDb credit for this movie. Amazing. Jennifer. Just, or J- Julianne Moore's drinking wine. Amy Adams is vlogging. Gloria like, Bell's it's all getting happening. fucking killed. <laughs> it's truly. I'm so excited. Brian Tyree Henry is like asking tough questions. It's Sexy. amazing. I love it. All right. So, yeah. Trailer. Trailer gets everybody excited, even though some people are like, you know, looking at what's actually in the trailer and are just like, what the fuck is going on? Because it looks, I mean, it gives you, even in, you know, this brief, very markety kind of a, kind of a form. It looks insane. Of course it looks insane. All these yeah. characters, all this, you know. You have Jim Broadbent periods. getting a plunger to the face. Jim Broadbent getting a plunger to the face. The whole thing. It's truly, it's truly you remarkable. You got Tom Cruise looking like Pitbull. Tom Hanks. But yeah, Tom Cruise would have been amazing in this movie. Oh, did I say Tom Cruise? You did. I always speak too fast and always say the wrong name. That's fine. You know what I mean. I listeners. do. Okay. You know that I know. So let's talk about the movie itself. It, as you, as we've mentioned, takes place in six distinct time periods, and in each one, a different member of the cast is sort of the central character, and then somebody yes. else is. There's usually at least one sort of major antagonist, and I think they're all, I think they're all kind of different people, right? Because it's Hanks in the first one, and Hanks is the one that goes through the arc. So, like, he does play a villain at some times, right? Broadbent's the villain in the Frobisher story. Mm-hmm. Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving are kind of the bad guys in both the Louisa Ray story and the Cavendish story, um, and also kind of in the Sonmi Four Five One story. Basically, Hugo Weaving—they're really a lot like of stuff. two different forces of evil. <coughs> Hugh Grant is like a like individual for their own good force of evil in the right, world. Right. And Hugo Weaving is like an institutional evil or yeah. like a representational evil. He's like a he's an eternal evil. He's like he's the bad that's always going to be there, right? He's, you yeah. know, he, he's the assassin in the 1970s who's just like, well, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody else. But like And then you have Hugh Grant who's more like the billionaire. Yes. And like But like it's always strangely banal, right? It's just like, oh, he's after money like how pedestrian oh he's after like in in the future one he's you know a cannibal or whatever anyway we're getting ahead of ourselves as we always do first storyline 1849 off some island off the coast of new zealand jim sturgis plays this sort of young man who's married into um this family hugo weaving is the patriarch of this family heavily into the slave trade sturgis accompanies the ship to this Maori island uh, off the coast of New Zealand, and he ends up getting sick with whatever. A parasite that turns out not to be a parasite because it's Tom Hanks poisoning him so he can steal all his money. He's got, like, a chest of coins, like, doubloons or something like that. It's all very, like, plot in this movie 
is whatever. I think basically the emotional truth of it is just like Jim Sturgis. The emotional truth of it is the plot. Like emotion is plot in this movie. Right, exactly. And it's that Sturgis is being slowly poisoned and he's writing this journal as he's, you know, supposedly dying. Uh, hoping he can get back to Tilda, who is his young wife, who we see by the end of the movie is played by Duna Bay. And he's makes the acquaintance of this slave who he sees at the beginning of the movie being whipped up on this post. And the slave stows away on the ship. The slave is played by David Giassi, who is from, I best know him from... Um, Interstellar. I don't know mm-hmm. if he's best best known for anything else for you. Atua. <clears throat> excuse me. Atua is his name. And he sort of like earns passage on the ship and he's the one who kind of catches on to the idea that Hanks is poisoning Sturgis and ends up saving him and it sort of causes this change in Sturgis's uh, sort of belief system or at least an evolution there's a lot to do with spiritual evolution in this movie where like you make a Mm -hmm. your you know your your spirit your soul sort of like makes a leap from one way of thinking or one way of being to another and that's that for him and he comes back home and he and his wife decide to go join the abolitionists and it's it's very sort of um lessons learned kind of thing. I think it's the most sort of like morally neat of all of these. It's probably the first narrative is probably the least, I don't want to say integral to the narrative, but like, it feels like we're checking in with all of these stories throughout the movie. And this Mm. is the one we check in with the least. Mm, Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. Um, it feels like we get the Cavendish story in, like, two or three big chunks, but I think you're probably right. How do we like Sturgis in this storyline and throughout the film? I'm not a Jim Sturgis fan. Well, it just seems like like, he never happened, right? He was supposed to happen, I think, across the universe was sort of mm -hmm. supposed to launch him, and then he never happened. Yeah. And, like, regardless, he feels like... He's not driving this narrative, even though I guess the character kind of is. Like, I'm more drawn to David Giassi. I feel like the climax of this story is more led by, like, the evil that Hugo Weaving is spouting. And right. then, like, Jim Sturgis, like, rebuttals him in, like, two lines. There's a natural order to things, and those who try to upend it do not fare well. It's like, it's very thesis statementy because we we hear that yes. that's again like there are there are lines of dialogue that sort of get echoed throughout some of the different ones and that whole thing about there's a natural order to things and that plays into a lot of the sort of revolutionary acts that happen at later points in the movie so i feel like it's definitely mm-hmm. like this is necessary this is sort of setting your baseline for a lot of things that come after that yes so next storyline, 1936, in the Robert Frobisher storyline. Robert Frobisher, played by Ben Wishaw, my favorite performance in the movie. I don't know about you. 
I would maybe have to think about who my favorite performance is, especially since I have like gushed so much about the lovely Keith David. But maybe mm-hmm. I think the movie emotionally probably relies on him the most mm-hmm. and his storyline for kind of a sense of tragedy or yeah um, we first see him he's uh getting sort of uh chased out of boots with james darcy knocking the boots with james darcy he's getting chased out of his hotel he's sort of been um kind of excommunicated from his family right probably because they found Mm -hmm. out he's uh uh, a bugger A a a friend of dorothy right i uh and um, we do see get to see his cute little bum as he runs away from James Darcy and out the hotel or yeah out the hotel window, and sort of runs off to this this job he's found with this old composer, sort of mean old man played by Jim Broadbent, who is supposedly this like composing genius, but essentially hires Ben Washaw to like write the music that he sort of like toodles out in his yeah he's he's supposed to be a transcriber but what really jim broadbent's character vivian Ayers does is he hijacks the like whatever creative juices robert frobisher comes up or any of his original things and the most uh, work significant original thing he comes up with is uh this piece of music called the cloud atlas sextet which is a piece of score that recurs throughout the whole movie in all these different time periods. And it's, it's beautiful. super beautiful. Sorry, I'm losing my voice here as I'm talking. Um, probably, <laughs> I shouldn't talk so much. Probably I, I should... could also take over for you. You could. In this, in this segment, we also have Holly Berry as Vivian's wife, Jocasta. This is the first real time that we see like the extreme makeup of the movie. Yes. Because Holly Berry is made into an Aryan white woman. Um, well, I, fairly convincingly, I have to say, like, maybe this is a good time to start talking about the makeup of this movie. Yeah, maybe not Aryan, though, because her character's Jewish, right? That's why she's sort of... Oh, she's Jewish. Never mind. But she's blonde. Oh, yeah. And she's like, and she sure is white. But like, yeah, that's, there's, but again, this is where, you know, racial and cultural identity are all sort of like suffused through all of this movie. Mm-hmm. And she ends up in bed with Frobisher because who could resist? And exactly, um, Jesus Ben Wishaw and Holly Berry having sex—that's like some of the sexiest, yeah. bed partners on film, yeah, ever. And Not so, sound all, like a creep? No, it's totally true. And then all the while, he is both writing these letters to James Darcy, whose character's name is uh, Sixsmith. David Sixsmith? James Sixsmith? What is his actual name? I can't remember. Um, Rufus Sixsmith. Oh, is it Rufus? Okay. Yes. That's a great name. Anyway, um, he's writing this letters to Sixsmith and also reading the journal that Adam Ewing, Jim Sturgis, was writing in the first storyline. So it's already like we're funneling one sort of thing into the other. He's writing Which is like a device of the book, too, where it's like... The way the book is like kind of like you have stories inside of stories, like kind yeah. of a matryoshka doll, whereas the movie is like cutting back and forth constantly. Yeah, yeah. And so, and Frobisher ends up getting chased out of that situation when he misinterprets sort of the vibe between him and Broadbent 
tries to make a move on him a little bit, and Broadbent kind of, like, cruelly laughs at him, and then basically, like, decides to, like, very villainously just be like, no, I will keep you here and profit off of all of your creative output. And plagiarize and your work. And nothing you can do about it, or else I'll, like, you know, destroy your reputation and tell everybody tell everyone that you are a pederast. Yeah, so it's... That storyline, for, for various obvious reasons hits close to home with, you know, with me. I think it felt very sort of current in terms of uh, the fact that these, like, you know, these gay characters couldn't risk honesty. Do you know what I mean? That they Mm -hmm. had sort of reached the wall of how far they could go with their love and with their lives. And at one point, Frobisher in his letters talks about how basically like there's you know there's a world beyond this and there are there are boundaries that you know can't be pushed that can you know can't be that can be pushed but not transcended until like you know time has gone by and and future generations and it was you know it i think it hits very very effectively it's it's yeah it the i guess the close of this story is very tragic and oh, very moving especially at the time cuz he he ultimately kills himself as uh, Rufus Sixsmith is on his way to see him <sighs> and like it's tragic because you have all of these reconciliations and all of these you know healings of the soul that happen throughout the rest of the stories and they never reunite in another story. Right. Um, right. So it's... It, it and in fact, tragic. we see in the 1970 story, which is the one that comes next, we see Six Smith as an old man, and he still hangs on to Frobisher's letters and, and continually reads them, and so... The only character that is the same between right. stories. Right. So then, all right, so we're in the 70s. Louisa Ray, Halle Berry plays investigative journalist Louisa Ray. With, like, the most fabulous patchwork leather jacket you've ever yes! seen. Yes! Oh, my God. Yeah, the costumes in this movie are fantastic anyway. Um, this is a fun little storyline. I feel like this one turns into sort of the most... Um, it's like, a, like you know, uh, an investigative thriller a little bit, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the storyline where you see... Where you, like, kind of... Where Cloud Atlas kind of actualizes that... Yes, you have all of these narrative through lines, but each story is somewhat its own genre. Right. Right. And this one is very sort of stylized 70s. It, mm-hmm. You know, it sort of knows Sydney what... Pollock. Yeah, 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 definitely. There's actually, like, a literal point where Keith David's character, like, rolls across the hood of a car to get to the other side of it. And it's just like, okay, man, like, I love it. Legend Keith David. Yeah, exactly. Um... So, and, like, she's looking to take down this petroleum company who's, like, getting into nuclear power, and it's owned by Hugh Grant, who's, like, the most transparently not-on-the-level character you've ever seen. <laughs> the most the most evil billionaire yeah. that is not... Oh, God. And Hugo know. Weaving plays an assassin named Bill Smoke, which I think is supposed, like, fairly um, intentionally recalls the image of the other character he plays, old Georgie, in the future, future storyline that we'll get to in a second. Um, and Tom Hanks is blonde. Yeah, and Tom Hanks is blonde. He plays a scientist. He blows up in a plane. That was, like, the most shocking, like, 
sad moment. Falls where it's just in like, love it's so with Louisa Ray the second that he meets her, and then blows but we up should in say plane, Louisa. Like, Yes. Louisa meets Six Smith because they're trapped in an elevator together and he yes. knows that she's a journalist and he in like the waiting for this elevator to go through like reveals this like petroleum company to mm-hmm. her and like yeah, sets her off on the investigation and he's assassinated essentially by Bill Smoke which like tells her, "Oh, I am in danger." Yeah. Oh, poor Six Smith. So tragic. So then we move to 2012, which is contemporary with the movie, obviously. This is the very self-consciously silly, comedic portion of the movie. Very farcical. There's moments of the movie that are incredibly farcical, but, like, this is the one that's, like, almost to the point of, like, let's make fun of a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I like that. With a bunch of old people trying to escape an old folks home. Jim Broadbent's character gets, like, tricked into signing his life away and, like, registering for this nursing home because his brother wanted to fuck him over for, like, screwing his wife. But then there's also... His brother, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, right. (laughs) Um, This also has one of the more touching aspects of the denouement of the movie is when we find out, when we see... So, sorry, to back up. This story, the Cavendish story, everything that happens to him, we see in future parts of the of the storylines becomes a film, becomes like right. written down as a story, and then it becomes a film. We see Hanks acting as the Cavendish character in like a movie that was made and then was preserved and ends up being shown for the characters in Neo Soul, which is the storyline that happens next. Where Cavendish is like a inspirational figure right right um because he again he was you know pushed beyond these boundaries and broke free of his you know chains and all of this but also uh he is sort of longing for this old love of his who he sort of checks it we see him checking in on her from afar she's played by susan sarandon and these uh this he mentions in the movie that we see uh, in the future, played by Hanks, he mentions sort of being cooped up like Solzhenitsyn in Vermont. And um, in the movie, it's supposed to refer to his captivity at this sort of nursing home. And then when we see it at the end of the movie, he mentions like Solzhenitsyn in Vermont, unlike him, I won't be alone. And originally that felt like that was referring to, you know, his captors, his fellow inmates or whatever, in the nursing home, and at the end, that seems to refer to him and the Susan Sarandon character, and it's very sweet, and, and you know, it's a good moment. It, it's it's the it's, the things that I love about this movie, if I was going to name you, like, the top 20 things that I love, I think none of them are in the Cavendish story. It's probably the one that I would most likely throw away, with the exception of, like, the denouement of it where it's like he and Susan Sarandon yeah. finally get to be together. I would throw it away if I thought it was possible to throw any parts of this movie away. And I really feel like right, it's the right, most right, right. Jenga tower of a movie where like you really can't get rid of any one part because then you lose something of the effect of the whole thing. But yeah, but it's when I think about what I love part. about Cloud Atlas, right. it's never Agreed. the Jim Broadbent story. It's, t- it's the silliness doesn't land with me. I think the... 
It's the weakest of the Tickfer sections. Right. And I genuinely think... Tom Tickfer has the middle chunks of the movie. He has, right. He has the the middle uh, three sections. He has Frobisher, Louis Ray, and Cavendish. And Cavendish. Right, exactly. So let's move on to then the the next Wachowski segment, which I think the Neo-Soul stuff is the the part of the movie that feels like it could most be its own movie on its own. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think it plays that way. I think this is the stretch... This is the movie where we see the longest stretches of it on its own. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is essentially... It requires probably the most explanation. I mean, it's also that, like, we have seen that movie before. It's called Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, kind of. It's not un... It's not unreminiscent of Blade Runner in a lot of ways, where it's about these sort of clones that have been created to... Serve. It's the most distinct visual style that, like, it look those sections look like a fucking Wachowski movie. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's you know, it's very well done. The visual effects are very cool. And I will say, this is the part that gets the most sort of representationally squishy because you have a lot of white actors in like for real Yellow oriental face. face, like very much like the makeup is very you know the eye the eyes are narrowed and. The, the the shapes of their faces are sort of contorted. And when you have villains like, Wish, like uh, not Wishot, like Hugo Weaving and Hugh Grant, and even James Darcy, who's not a villain, but he's sort of a uh, bureaucrat of the, mm-hmm. of the oppressive sort of ruling class. And it he's makes them... He's interviewing Sanmi before she's executed. And they don't look unlike, like, Vulcans from... Star Trek, like, yeah, do you know what I mean? that's a great comparison. Like I, because, like, I will say, I do think that the makeup work in this movie is absolutely exceptional, with the exception of the Sonmi portion, where they have white actors doing yellow face. Like, it looks cartoony. It does, like, except for, I will say, the Sturgis character, who plays the young revolutionary who helps her escape... And they have the sort of the Sturgis character. Maybe it's by comparison to the other ones that like he doesn't look as like garish as the other ones. And I think maybe some of the problem is like it's not an uncanny valley thing. No, it's that it's the opposite. We know what these actors look like. Yeah. Um. And but again, with the exception of like Holly Berry, who plays like a surgeon doctor something, and like that makeup is so extreme that yes. you don't even know that it's Holly Berry. <laughs> and she, yeah, right. She looks like... It's like character makeup. It's like... She looks yeah. like Dr. Mindbender from G.I. Joe. It's... It's Rick Baker shit. It is. And I... It's But again, and not to... It feels very sort of callous and kind of brash to just be like, well, the limitations of crossing racial boundaries in this movie are just part of what makes it good. But, like, there is something to the fact that the parts of this movie that bump up against a wall of possibility of having white actors be able to successfully translate as Korean, sort of pan Whatever, like the, mm-hmm. the whatever the future, whatever happened to nationalities in the future, we don't quite know. Um, playing Asian characters, that there's something. It's not. It's not charming. I don't want to say charming, but there's something where like f- the form meets function thing, where like oh, even the Wachowskis couldn't 
transcend all the boundaries that were in front of them, right? And I think that makes mm-hmm. the movie maybe even a little more interesting. That the movie is not a full success, and it's a, not a full success in a lot of the ways that like are mirrored in the story. Does that make yeah. any sense? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. Um, Which is not to... I like, don't know. I mean... To talk about it, like, obviously we're two white guys having this conversation. Yes. I do. There's something to what the Wachowskis are and Tom Tickford. We shouldn't just describe it to. No, the but this is, the, this is the Wachowski segment of the movie that they, you know. Yes, yes, yes. And, in, like, they brought Tom Tickford on board. Yeah. I don't know how to really put it other than I think that this movie is and what it's trying to achieve is at least worth a good faith estimation. And that I don't think said, they take it lightly. I don't think what they're trying to do is always successful. No, and I think no. I don't know if it ever can be. Right. But I think they they I think they come at this movie and they come at this this attempt to do what they're doing in this section. It's not just that, like, oh, they had good intentions. Like, a lot of people mm-hmm. had good intentions. I think they they wrestle with the implications of it, you know, some. Like, in the text. Yeah. Like, it's not right. like they're blithely doing this. And the fact that then they also have their Asian actors playing white characters does, to me... And non-white characters. right. To me, non-Asian, non-white characters, right? As you mentioned, like as you know, a white person who Which I know that like to my also perspective say that it's like, oh, see, it's fine because they're doing this. Like it's, it's a really <laughs> like it's hard to. It's a very complicated thing, and I think that this movie knows that it's complicated and approaches it with sensitivity. Is there anything we still wanted to talk about in Neo Soul? I think Duna Bay is fantastic. Duna Bay is fantastic. I mean, you're right to say that this is the one that feels like it could be its own movie. And maybe the final one could also be its own movie. But it would be a very, very, very fucking weird movie. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Like, this is the one where it's really about kind of the love... This is at least where the love story between Duna Bay and Jim Sturgis, like comes to the foreground a little bit because it is it carries out throughout the other stories especially right the um 1849 ewing story yes 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 yes. those are the ones that like they mirror you know almost exactly right because it's the same almost exactly and like thematically what each story is trying to achieve yes is almost like mirror parallels that's also part Um, of the reason why i maybe have less to bring it back to the cavendish story in 2012 a little bit, is that, like, Duna Bay and Jim Sturgis get two specific segments of this movie to mirror their love story. Tom Hanks and Halle Berry also get two distinct segments of this movie to mirror their love story. And wouldn't it have been, you know, if nothing else symmetrical, to let Frobisher and Sixsmith, or to let Washaw and James Darcy, let's say, mirror their 1936 storyline with the other you know, section of this movie, which is the 2012 section. It almost kind of makes you want them to be doing some type of swapping of roles in some type of way where it's 
Frobisher and Cavendish or like Six Smith and Cavendish are the same actor, actor something, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You don't really have a whole lot of gender swapping in this movie. Ben Wishaw eventually plays a female character. Hugo Weaving Obviously, plays Hugo the Weaving nurse. does. Yeah. I, I I feel like the doctor I that Halle Berry plays in Neo Soul is a man, I'm pretty sure. Yes, 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 yes. And then we have the final story, also known as the true true story. <laughs> <laughs> which takes place they call it the fall so we know that this is like a post-apocalyptic story right where they're on an island which i have read places was is supposed to be hawaii i guess yeah. but it's supposedly in 2321 right like like yeah society has collapsed and and this is the Tom Hanks story. This is where, like, Tom Hanks gets to finally be the everyman yes. who, like, does the good deed and the good but thing. But he's weak. That's what Zachary. I love about that character at the beginning is he's he's t- yes. he's too afraid to help his brother-in-law against this, like, marauding band of cannibals. And he gets killed and his nephew gets killed. And it's, I mean, you get the sense that, Jim like... Sturgis. Right, Yes. And you get the sense that Hanks probably wouldn't have been able to help much, but also he's, you know, hiding behind this rock because this old Papa Shango-looking monster figment of his also imagination. Also known as old Georgie, a yeah. green leprechaun person that may or may not be real, played by Hugo Weaving. Right. Played so menacingly There's by leprechaun Hugo in the hood, there's <laughs> leprechaun in space, and there is leprechaun after the fall. The, the Hugo Weaving... Um, sort of overview of all of his characters feels like it's the strongest with possibly the one exception of maybe Duna Bay. And maybe that's only because Duna Bay plays like two major characters and then like one very minor character where she plays a Mexican woman. Um, But Hugo Weaving is like the embodiment of the slave trade in the the earliest storyline. He's, you know, the horrible like nurse ratchet on steroids. Elder abuse. Right, elder abuse in the 2012 storyline. He's assassin Bill Smoke in the Louisa Ray storyline. And now in this, he's, like, literally the inhuman apparition of, like, the devil. The devil on Tom Hanks' shoulder at every turn, telling him to take the easy way out, to run away. He is Tom Hanks' inner saboteur. Oh my god, Chris, I literally wrote down, can I tell you, read you directly verbatim from my notes is I wrote down, what if RuPaul, instead of asking us to confront our inner saboteur, asked us to confront our <laughs> old Georgie? Asked us to confront our old Georgie! Yes! Yes! Absolutely. <laughs> I'm so glad we're on the same page Joe Reed, what actor plays, not your inner saboteur, but your old Georgie? I mean... Personify your old Georgie for me. Joaquin Phoenix? Oh, that makes sense. You know? like, that is your nemesis. Yeah. Who's yours? I am not trying to bring up old <laughs> shit, I swear to God. But maybe my old Georgie is Glenn Close. Oh. What if I'm not trying to bring up old shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Listeners, tweet at us. Let us know who your old Georgie is. What what personality from the movie is, yeah. is the old Georgie what that torments What actor, you? personality, whoever plays your old Georgie. 
I think for a lot of people, the role Georgie could be Hugo Weaving because he plays him so effectively in this. Anyway, yeah. so poor Zachary is a coward, and his brother-in-law has died, and he goes to the abbess, played by Susan Sarandon, for like guidance, and we find out that their religion is essentially based on Sanmi four five one, this freed yes. uh, replicant, for better, for lack of a better term. Okay, but they can't be in Hawaii because there's a whole monument to Sanmi four five one, which we have to assume was in Korea, or that's the the religion of Sanmi four five one spread far and wide. Uh, fine. Okay, I I will just say, and maybe this is the indicator here. This is the storyline. That I have no idea what the fuck is going on. Well, because you can't understand what they're saying. I had captions on for the whole movie <laughs> just so I could like understand all the like they the pigeon speak language in Brad that they're Pitt, doing. Meet Joe Black, Pat Ah, yeah, that is the true. Also, true, also, like weird, like southern. But the one thing that they say that is like in perfect clarity is this sort of mantra of Sanmi 451, which we get a lot of in the trailer, yeah. which is, our lives are not our own from womb to tomb. Uh, we are bound to others, past and present, and through every crime and every kindness, we birth our future. And it's sort of this mantra of... Um, Tattoo that on my neck. What's that? I said, Tattoo that on my neck. Seriously. I don't have any tattoos. That'll be my first. Um... That's this this sort of this gospel of interconnectedness, right? Interconnectedness not only through everybody who's alive now, but like through the past, through the future. This sort of you know, there's there's been this idea that's taken hold, I think, in a lot of things that I've seen lately about inherited trauma, inherited, you mm-hmm. know, damage. And I think the I think a movie like Cloud Atlas is saying you know that, but also inherited like transgression inherited um you know pushing past whatever limitations and boundaries this is where the phrase all boundaries inherited bravery right inherited at one point in frobisher's letters he mentions the phrase all boundaries are conventions waiting to be um to be you know traversed and all boundaries are conventions Mm -hmm. is the name of the instrumental track on the in the score that is like the most beautiful piece of music from this. If you listen to any section of the Cloud Atlas score, and I recommend listening to it all, obviously listen to the sextet, but like All Boundaries Are Conventions is just breathtakingly gorgeous. And it's used in the part of the movie where um, where Sanmi451 and um, Haiju have sex, and also like intercut with other things. And then it's also used at the part leading up to the part where Frobisher kills himself. So it's just like the most sort of like high emotion parts of this movie. Mm-hmm. The Wachowskis, I will say, are very, very good at scoring uh, sex scenes to beautiful pieces of music. There is, mm-hmm. I have mentioned plenty of times, the giant orgy at the very end of the Sense8 finale movie is scored to that piece of music from Mommy that plays during the uh, the fantasy sequence where she's imagining um, her son oh sort of growing God. up. Right, right. And it is just like, and I'm watching, I'm watching this really scene in Sense8, to. and it's like this wonderful scene on its own. And like, it's not only just like, you know, this hot sort of like sex scene that they're all sort of sharing together because they meld 
you know, emotionally, but also it's just like, it's saying some like really incredibly interesting things. And it's this triumphant sort of like, um, almost like a flex on a part of the film where it's just sort of just like, yeah, Mm -hmm. we did that kind of a thing. And it's that it's set to this piece of music. And I'm like, where do I know this from? It's like when, um, it's like the end of arrival when it's just like when that piece of music recurred on like castle rock last year during that sissy spacek episode where it's yeah, just it's like where yeah, do i know yeah. this music from and then once i realized that the sensate music was from that part in mommy i was just just like devastated all anew because like that wrecked me there too anyway music from movies is great movie scores are great everybody should listen to them all the time hello take us home take us home with uh what happens in the rest of zachary's storyline Okay, but here's the problem. I could not tell you. This is the one that like <laughs> feels more abstract in a way because like Georgie is not real. Halle Berry shows up. She's part of the like future people, right? Where she's just, yeah, like, like, the- like he and Tom Hanks go on like a journey. Basically, I think old Georgie's trying to get her to kill, trying to get him to kill her. Right, old Georgie wants because she's significant and she's like powerful. Basically, I think generally, I think when we joke about old Georgie being. Zachary's inner saboteur, I think he's exactly that. I think he's the devil on his shoulder, and he knows what Zachary knows sort of deep down inside, which is that he can't stay in the valley forever. The valley is death. The valley is stagnation. There's nothing ever going to happen in that valley, except for that, like, they're, you know, they'll eventually all get, like, drubbed out by these savages, and their, their clan will die. And then he and Holly Berry, like, end up together, and they have, like, umpteen progeny and like all of these million grandchildren right but i think getting there i think it's i think i mean it sounds very simple but like hanks finds his bravery he manages to like not listen to old georgie when old georgie tells him to let go of the rope when he's trying to save her on their mountain climbing when she says you saving me twice in that part in the trailer that i always love um and they f- they fall in love, but they fall in love through this sort of like shared mission. She's got to get to this mountaintop to reach this uh, essentially like temple temple to Sanmi four five one, where they have the the statue, the giant statue yes. of Sanmi. But they can also communicate. They're trying to communicate off world so that the whatever people from Earth have like moved on to whatever colonies are off world right, right, right. to tell them that like, hey, come get us because this place is dying. And that's why when we jump see, to the like, future, that's the stuff that I don't fully ever wrap my brain around. It feels far more incongruous with the rest of all of the other storylines that are going on than anything else. That's fair. I think in, that's like, fair. In like the other storylines, that like it's true. This is truly to, to me the hardest storyline to track. I think that's probably true, except for the fact that. I think Halle Berry and Tom Hanks ground it emotionally so well that I don't know if I yes, nest- like you know what the emotional the truth of this story yeah. is like, and like I said earlier, the emotional truth of Cloud Atlas is the narrative truth. Yeah, like, that's what matters. Yeah. So I mean, like that's the plot of Cloud Atlas. I don't know, and like you know, it's tough to say like that's the plot. The plot doesn't matter, but like I think threading these characters through these different storylines does actually matter. And we don't get them one by one by one. We get them, you know, chopped up and, and you know, sequentially. And like, in, in dialogue with one another. That's the, that's the way to put it, yes. So you having read the novel, how, how does this movie do as an adaptation of the novel? 
It's definitely a take on the novel. Yeah. Like I said, it's like the novel is very like like a Matryoshka doll. It's like one inside of the other, and it's like you begin with one story, <laughs> and then it goes into another where they're relating back, and then eventually we go back to all of the stories in the opposite direction. Um, I mean, I like the movie better than the novel. Yeah. Um, but, like, I don't really know. There's not much necessarily to say about the novel in relation to the movie. I think the movie's far more ambitious. Yeah. I think it's, like, far more emotional, certainly. Yeah. So, we've, we, like, the obvious thing to say about Cloud Atlas is its reception when it premiered was immediately clear that it wasn't going to be an awards player. It was not a financial success. People were confounded by it. People at best thought it was like an ambitious, you know, miss. I think there was there were mm-hmm. definitely pockets of people who enjoyed it, but like as one of those people, like there were very few of us going It's probably early on. one of the most divisive movies of the past decade, at least in terms of like what the reviews were. Yeah. In like the swings between people absolutely over the moon for this movie and people literally calling it the worst movie of the year. Right. Yeah. Village um, Voice Poll and which Time is Magazine so unfair. Both said it was the worst movie of the year. So congratulations to it there. Shout out to Katie Rich, by the way. She was on my side from the beginning with this movie. We were both Team Cloud Atlas. Um mm. So, okay, but in the light of that then, right, sort of like Oscar campaigning was never going to happen. It made the shortlist for the visual effects Oscar, but it didn't progress beyond that. Somehow the score, which was a Golden Globe nominee, didn't ever – it was one of those – that was an interesting year for score, right? Where I thought – score is always a really psychotic experience, but this one makes way more sense – Life of Pi ends up winning both the Golden Globe and the Oscar. The Life of Pi score is very good. Michael Dana is a very good composer. And I think also that year, there were some like generally agreed upon really strong scores. The Anna Karenina score by Marianelli was great. John Williams had one of those like, oh, I'm John Williams. I'm going to like do something cool. And he like that central theme for Lincoln. I'm making a movie about a president. Right. Here but, like, is my score. That central theme is very recognizable and strong. And I think that's what you hire John Williams for. So like, good. I thought the Argo nomination for Desplat was very like rubber stamp Desplat. Like sometimes they'll just be like. It's very much the rise of Desplat. Right. I loved the Skyfall score. I know there was, Thomas Newman did the Skyfall score. I know a lot of people were like, yeah, he's just doing a Bond score. And like, yeah, but I don't know. I loved it. And I'm not really like- through that Thomas Newman lens. Yeah, but I love Thomas Newman. I love Skyfall. I'm a freaking like, I don't know. I'm a sub for Thomas Newman. I will do whatever he tells me to do. (laughs) Um, But so- Thomas Newman and the Skyfall score don't make the Golden Globe Five. In that case, they nominated Cloud Atlas. And I thought immediately, well, maybe there's a little ray of hope. Because the two best scores from 2012 are Cloud Atlas and are Beasts of the Southern Wild. And for whatever reason, even though Beasts of the Southern Wild was an awards player, was like on the radar, did so much better with the Oscars than it did the Globes. absolutely nothing below the line. It never... It's psychotic. It's crazy. It's crazy that that score didn't get I get get that people have varying opinions of that movie, and like that all makes sense to me. I understand all of it. Yes. But like the craft of that movie, I feel like is somewhat inarguable. And like the score was one of those things that we thought would really happen and 
unless I'm remembering wrong, it is not nominated for that? No, it's not. Wild. No, uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild got, I want to say, four Oscar nominations? Four Oscar nominations. Yeah, all above the line. All above the line. So it was, what, picture, director, actress, and screenplay? Yep, adapted screenplay. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're not going to like my answer to this, but I was going to have a rebuttal because I was not expecting you to say Cloud Atlas and Beasts of the Southern Wild. But I'm also going to say the score for the master is of the gods. And that is um, Johnny Greenwood? Yes. I am am famously both cool on a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's recent stuff and also decently cool on... um, any Johnny Greenwood score, I I respect your respect for it. Um, I don't need it, but that's fine. Now I want to look up what my other nominations were for score that year, because I know I definitely had strong opinions. I'm sure the Anna Karenina score was on mine, because like, definitely. I love that movie, and I think that movie... I mean, talk about a movie that should have been nominated in every technical category. Hold on. Sorry, I know you don't like text, right? Craft? Yes, I hate that phrase. Sorry. Technical means absolutely nothing. Of course it means absolutely nothing, but a lot of things mean absolutely nothing, and we still use it. It means absolutely nothing. Say craft category or below the line. It's just, below the line is it's pejorative. A, I don't want to say pejorative things. I don't think it's I don't think it's pejorative. Below. It's 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 implicitly below pejorative. Below is not beneath. But it's implicitly pejorative. I don't know. Okay. Um sorry, my Word document has behaved strangely. <laughs> okay. Um, because it's like... Listeners, the... these are the things that when Joe and I are going to have petty arguments, we have petty arguments like that. Okay, so I had... This is a very kind of top-heavy category. Beasts of the Southern Wild, Cloud Atlas, Anna Karenina, Skyfall. I had the John Bryan score for Paranorman up there. I had the... Oh, fun. And then the Nathan Johnson score for Looper, I also thought, was quite good. But basically... No Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, Moonrise Kingdom's cute. Of course, yeah. Moonrise Kingdom would have been online. That's a good one. Is that also Desplat? I believe so. And this was at the point where he hadn't won yet. He didn't win until uh, right. Grand Budapest? I think, yeah, I think so. Which is wild to me, anyway. <sighs> that movie, whatever. So, okay, um, so the score should have been nominated. Visual effects that made the bake-off. Probably should have gotten a makeup nomination, although you can see why they wouldn't have wanted to maybe, like, touch that angle Go there, especially when you have Asian-American organizations coming out against this movie. I feel like it could have been a costume nominee. I think it should have been an editing nominee. I mean, like, it sounds like maybe the most, like, trite thing to praise about this movie because of what it is. Right. But, like, I, I really don't think you can underplay how difficult of an editing task this movie is and how, like, all of the success of this movie, even if you don't think it's successful, I guess, relies in how this movie is edited and the information they give you and how you can still track all of these stories. No, I think that's true. Of the cast, is there anybody who you would have elevated to the point of wanting to nominate them for an acting award? To nominate? Yeah. Probably not. Um, But, I mean, I do think that the cast is largely really good. Who's my favorite person in the cast? I guess probably Ben Wishaw. 
Wish I would have made my supporting actress ballot that year. I think that was that was supporting of course, actress ballot. Did I say actress? <laughs> For when he plays a woman <laughs> in 2012, I'm guessing he would have made my supporting actor it's a ballot. Very lovely woman. Um, that was famously the year where all of the nominees were former Oscar winners, and Emma Stone and. Uh, Seth MacFarlane ruined the surprise during the nomination announcement because they started the bit too early, and they're jerks. Not Emma Stone's not a jerk. Seth MacFarlane's a jerk. Um, but so that was what Tommy Lee Jones for Lincoln, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master, Christoph Waltz who ended up winning for Django Unchained, Robert De Niro for Yikes. Silver Linings Playbook, and who am I missing? Alan Arkin for mm-hmm. Argo. Fuck yourself. For saying that line, Argo Fuck Yourself, is why he got nominated. Uh, I would have had, as I'm looking at my ballot in front of me, Wish I would have been one of my nominees. Tommy Lee Jones would have been the only Oscar nominee who I would have kept. I really liked him in Lincoln. Grumpy old sourpuss. Um, Donald Gleason in Anna Karenina. Uh, Matthew McConaughey for Magic Mike, who was the big, like, cause celeb. Everybody who was cool wanted Magic Mike, wanted Matthew McConaughey for Magic Mike, and rightly so. And then my last he would have been my winner. My last one was a toss up between Alessandro Nivola and Ginger and Rosa, Ezra Miller in Perks of Being a Wallflower, and Matthew McFadden in uh, Anna Karenina. It's a good year. It's a good year for supporting that's a actor. Good, that's a good lineup. A good lineup. I there was also I'm trying there to was, go through and find what I have, but it's probably old and incorrect. There was Luke Kirby and Take This Waltz that year, who I thought was really good. Javier Bardem and Skyfall, I thought was really good. Um, Boy, I hated that performance. Really? Oh, I loved it. Oh, I yeah, thought he was so despised. good. Yeah. Why? What was what? Just because it was so so much. So much, I felt it was vaguely homophobic. Oh, you were on that side of the fence. I I was on that side. I liked how menacingly homosexual it was. I will say, to at least bring up a performance that, well, I I hate this movie, Uh and maybe if I watched it again, I would not like this performance. At the time of the Django Unchained-ness... I was more on the side of let's honor Samuel L. Jackson. Sure. I just hated Django Unchained so much. Yeah, I I despise that movie. I also love Jason Clark and Zero Dark Thirty. And I do think that we should have nominated Dwight Henry for Beasts of the Southern That's Wild. That's also a very good. It's a very good one. He was so good in... Uh, He's incredible. He was so good in that movie. He sold his bakery to promote that movie, Uh, people. We could have at least given him an Oscar nomination. That was also, of course, speaking of we could have just given them an Oscar nomination the year that Anne Dowd uh, uh, campaigned for herself for compliance. Yep. We had had listeners when I did that, like, guessing game. We had people be like, Anne Dowd would never do that. Anne Dowd would never do that. (laughs) Oh, how little you know. Anne Dowd did do that, and it's not negative no. that she did that it's not like she did something like gross her stu- like yeah. that <laughs> promoting herself and like putting herself out there yeah. is like part of why she exploded the way that she did who did compliance that was uh it was i don't even think that that's a distributor that's around anymore hold on now i'm gonna look that up while you talk about other things Film. i don't know supporting actor this year sucks man Wait. I don't know why Dwight Henry... Oh, that for the way that Beasts of the Southern Wild got ahead, as much as we just said, like, below the line it should have been more, I don't understand why Dwight Henry never took hold. Uh, compliance distributed by Magnolia Pictures. Oh, never mind. Yeah. 
Good old Magnolia. But I mean, at the time, maybe they would have had the money at the time today. Yeah, but, but maybe not in 2012. They the were money. still. When did they? They were. Yeah, they didn't really have a whole ton going on at that point. So, like, she foot the bill for that. Or did they have something that she got was a like, Critics' Choice nomination out of it? Yeah. Wait, now I want to see if they had anything competing with uh, compliance that year. Maybe that was the thing. Not, not the yeah, not the where innkeepers. they can really only like afford one movie. Right. Like they put all of their money into Shoplifters last year. Right. Um, Rightly so, masterpiece. Shoplifters is great. A royal affair. I remember they seeing had, Shoplifters with nomination. you. Sorry. What was that? A royal affair. That was probably their biggest. Mm. Take this waltz. Take this waltz is so good. I'm so glad I'm seeing more and more people. Uh, advocating for that movie as we look back on this decade because that one was great and it was kind of like uh you know reviled at the time in a lot of corners which is stupid which is stupid because it is great let sarah polly keep making movies people she's fantastic at it I remember uh, looping back to shoplifters for a yeah. second. I remember seeing that with you at TIFF, looking at you completely dry-eyed and like dry-voiced <laughs> at the end of the movie because we saw it at the end of the festival. And I looked at you. I was like, if I wasn't so fucking tired, I would be a mess right now. <laughs> like I couldn't even cry. I was so tired. It's very good. Shoplifters is very good. We are kind of all over the place right now. If we yes, let's, we are. Let's pull it, let's, uh, in true Cloud Atlas form. Let's pull it back together. Is there anything else? else um that we want to talk about it it did get a couple nominations here or there it won the critics choice award for makeup so they weren't afraid to go there and they actually nominated it for costumes which i think is really good we mentioned that the village voice and time both named it their worst film of the year fuck off yeah like i just think that that is like i don't want to use a cheap word like mean but like just kind of flying in the face with what the movie is at least trying to do. Like, there's just... It's also the same thing of, like, people calling Cats the worst movie of the year. Like, there's so much, like, actually bad movies out there putting, like, bad, malicious, negative things out into the universe that you yeah. could tr- put that, like, title onto that it's just, like, come on. Um, watching Cloud Sorry, Atlas this day. time, the first was the first time that I noticed that the other half of Ewing's book was propping up the bed in Frobisher's bedroom. Uh-huh. Uh, I had not noticed that before, They even though they, like, very clearly show it. Um, also in that segment, when Broadbent's character tells Wishaw, tells Frobisher, when he pulls the gun on him and he says, you won't pull the trigger, your kind never does, I was so happy that he shot him after that. Mm-hmm. I was just like, fuck you, your kind never does. <laughs> Take that. We know our way around a we gun. We know our way around a gun. It's a Derringer, and we'll use it when we want to. Um, all right, anything else before we move into the IMDb game? <sighs> I guess we should like I, we should wrap up. Like, why, why do you like this movie so much? I feel like we both really, really love this movie, and I want to make sure we're articulating what is it about this movie that, like, captures us. I really just respect and just like want to preserve Lana and Lily Wachowski that they get to do what they do at such a high budget 
and like get to take the creative leaps that they do because like it just doesn't exist anymore. I am excited for Matrix 4. I don't care just because like they do these wild things and they get the money to do them. Um they make me I don't know. I guess like it's it's the type of this is the type of movie where it's like you see the thing it's trying to do and you respect the thing that it's trying to do. So it's like I guess I take such a good faith like approach to this movie yeah. already. They make me want and maybe that's not good and that doesn't say something good about me, but I like I don't know. Like I appreciate it. this movie just for the fact that it exists. Yeah, I think I think the Wachowskis in general make me want to love their movies maybe a little bit more often than I actually do. I think I always wish I had that part of me that connected to Speed Racer the way a lot of people connect to Speed Racer because right. those people really seem like they're having the time of their lives loving that movie. And while I feel like... It's not always in good taste. I don't always need good like, taste. Like, that's... I don't right. know if that's my hang-up. Um, I don't know. I don't know what my hang-up is with that movie. I think I think with something like Jupiter Ascending, there's a little bit more of a defiant optimism in the flavor of advocacy for that movie i'm not sure i quite buy it with you know everybody saying that jupiter ascending is this great movie and yet i love every second i'll have to see jupiter have you never seen it oh chris you should at least see it eddie redmayne is doing something in that movie that is truly needs to be seen to be believed it is it is the (laughs) it is the cats of film performances is what i will say can you how is eddie redmayne not in cats i know that i know many a person has said this but it's crazy no it is crazy he Um, belongs in that movie that's absolutely true and it's not just wanting to like and support what they do it's that like nobody else kind of has the like optimism or like genre audacity that they do and like for so many especially big budget filmmakers that play it so safe yeah or even just like generally safe i think that's true they definitely i appreciate the but i think where it comes down to for me for when i do connect with them with the exception of the matrix which i think i pretty much appreciate on you know on the grounds of its formal accomplishments and its exhilarating sort of plot propulsion. Like I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't love the matrix for its message. I love cloud Atlas for what the Wachowskis and Tickver through David Mitchell's text are saying about us. This is sort of how I feel about sense eight where it's just like sense eight had a big old convoluted plot. And I kind of like didn't watch a bunch of the middle of it. But when I came around to it at the end, I think that it sort of gripped me emotionally. And I think Cloud Atlas, for as, you know, clumsy as it sometimes is, or as, as limited as it as its, you know, its reach ex- exceeds its grasp a lot of times. But mm-hmm. um, what it says about the way we move forward, there is something sort of, you know, Tony Kushner-esque about... Uh, Cloud Atlas about, you know, the world only spins forward yeah, kind of thing. I think like I that agree. message sort of like reverberates in a lot of what Cloud Atlas is saying about how we are, you know, we're bound to each other and we, you know, we move forward, in, you know, through lives and through time periods and 
It has it's, such a capacity, especially in the hands of other filmmakers, to be hippie bullshit right. that it never is. It's so to me. It, it it has such a strength of belief in itself that it carries you along with it. It carries you past cynicism. It carries you past, at least for me, you know, it carries you past skepticism and I love being in that space. I love being in the space of the movie when it is truly wrapped up in its own view of humanity. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I really love it. I love being able to give this movie. They're the also just of the like doubt. really propulsive storytellers, and that's true of Tom Tickford too. Where it's like you don't really get the space to kind of <clears throat> doubt what it's doing. You just kind of like lock in and ride. Yeah it with them like there's not they don't leave a lot of room for doubt right because it's so propulsive i love the phrase tom tick virtue because it reminds me of glinda the good witch of the north (laughs) and toto too um that was on the other night i love that movie okay yeah i love cloud atlas i'm sorry i do i think it's wonderful i'm so glad we had it that year 2012 is a really interesting year we're going to talk about more 2012 movies and we'll get more into I think the meat and potatoes of that Oscar race, it's a really interesting one. But I'm glad Cloud Atlas was a part of it, even on the fringes, even though it never made it past, you know, the fringes of that conversation. I think it was great to discuss. And I think some of that is, like, it was just distributed by Warner Brothers. It wasn't in any way their baby. So why, especially if the movie doesn't make money, would they push it forward in a campaign like they should have. And maybe if that was different, it would be an editing nominee. It would be a visual effects nominee or a makeup nominee, that type of thing. Yeah, I don't think I could ever envision it being in any of the uh, above the line categories just because you'd have to wrangle with the story and the, you know, the implications. The amount of people that really think it's a bad movie. Right. Um but I do think on a technical level it deserved, you know, a lot of those a lot of those considerations. Anyway, Chris, do you want to tell our <laughs> wonderful listeners who have put up with the scattered conversation from us? Um what the Which I think is what they want. Yeah. From Cloud Atlas. I know. Yeah, they voted for it. You voted for it. I hope we did it justice, you guys. Tell tell them how the IMDB game works if they don't already know. So every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints across timelines, nationalities, <laughs> yes. makeup, Indeed. piano, arias. All, it. All of it. Okay. Um, I have one for you, Chris. Do you want to guess mine first, or do you want to give me your clue first? I'll go ahead and guess first. Okay. So what I have found in my research today is that much like Hairspray shows up on everybody's IMDb list, Wachowski movies show up on your IMDb known for if you are in them. Mm. Like, it is... And you know I try and pick uh, performers who don't have that movie that we're talking about. Don't have the, you know, the connective tissue yes, that yes, I'm yes, getting yes, to, yes, yes, yes. you know, as part of their known for. So I sort of searched far and wide. What I ended up with is just sort of this, like, degree of separation where uh, 
Gukuma Bathara is in Jupiter Ascending. She doesn't have a major role in Jupiter Ascending. I feel like she could be a great performer for a Wachowski movie if they ever wanted to cast her as the star in something. But for now, I'm going to ask you to guess the known for for Gukuma Bathara. None are television. And... Oh, this is interesting. None are voice. Is yeah, there a voiceover? None, none are voiceover. Okay. It's a good sign. Uh, Beyond the Lights. Yes. Beyond the Lights. Her best performance. Fantastic. She's so wonderful in that movie. I wish it was not opposite Nate Parker. I will say, I didn't... I know. That was my hang-up from the beginning with I didn't movie. love him in that movie even before uh, he became... <laughs> disgraced or was revealed to have see but like it, it was always out there about nate parker that's I didn't why know. like i felt uncomfortable watching that movie i i would um, have if I anyway it's a yeah. great movie yeah. that's not the thing we should be talking about when we talk about that movie. right exactly. um we should be talking about Minnie fucking driver also because she's so good talk about two actress performances that are incredible yes. um okay gugu mabatha raw okay <sighs> I know that this is some bullshit, but I know it's got to be there. She is in the Beauty and the Beast live-action movie. She is. That, it's got to be there. That was the one where I was sort of hesitating, because I was like, is she... When she turns into the Feather Duster, yeah. is she just a voice? But no, she's. we see her. Everybody, it's, you know... Yeah. It's Yeah. 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 Yes, that is... Fuck that, that is, movie. Yes, so two of the four. Um, God, that's good memory. I never think of her in that movie. There's a lot of people in that movie. I'd be willing to bet, honestly, that that is another movie that everyone on that poster. Oh, that's interesting. Because it does have a big cast. Yeah. And like even like Stanley Tucci is on that poster. I bet everyone on that poster or almost everybody on that poster, it's on their IMDb page. Oh, that's so sad. I think I this know. is the first time I've come across it in the IMDb game, though. Really? Okay. So. Uh, Miss Sloan. No, strike one. Not Miss Sloan. Uh, that's probably too small. That's a stupid guess. What's her um, character's name in that again? <laughs> Hold on. Esme Manchurian. Esme Manchurian. <laughs> Manducherian. What a ridiculous I was, name. I was DMing somebody about this the other day. It's the only way I know Wait, how to do it. Wait, what, what possibly brought you to the conversation? We were talking about Miss Sloan, and I was were. saying Goo's good in the movie. Oh, um, wonderful. All right. Uh, all right, one strike. That fucking Cloverfield movie that she did is not there. It got. It's got to be Leeds. Um, you said you. It's not Jupiter. Ascending. Wait, she is the lead in the Cloverfield I've, Paradox. Yeah, but that's not going to be there. People happily let that movie go. Plus, it's Netflix. Um, it's not going to be Fast Color, even though that's really great, and listeners should watch Fast Color on Hulu, I believe, right now. Yes. I also should watch Fast Color on Hulu because I want to. I haven't seen it yet. It is a really good movie that got no release. Right. Um, Bell? Bell, correct. Okay, cool. Abba Asante's Bell. Fantastic. That's a good um, movie. She's very good in that. I never saw that. She's good. All right, so but I'm missing one. I know one. that the poster is just her. See, here's the thing. She plays a lot of wives. She plays a lot of supporting characters. She deserves better. Uh-huh. I just don't 
know what it could be, so I know that this is too soon, and I'm going to say Motherless Brooklyn. It's not Motherless Brooklyn. All right, so that's One of the worst strikes. movies of the year, Motherless Brooklyn. <laughs> two strikes, and now you get the year. The year is 2015. 2015. So when would that have been? That would have been after Beyond the Lights. Correct. <sighs> Ooh, you may have legitimately stumped me. All right. Um, Give me some more clues. I've never seen this movie, but I, my guess. Have I seen this movie? I think maybe you have. I My guess is that your supposition that it's a wife character is not wrong. Okay. Um, it stars. Is it a boy movie or like, would she be a... God, this is so gross. Would she be a prominent wife or an unprominent wife? Um, she is fourth build in this movie, according to IMDb. <sighs> she is the top build woman, probably playing a wife. Yes, although she has a different last name than the main character's name, so maybe I'm wrong. Um, this okay. movie stars somebody. Who we have also we have previously done an episode on, and both oh. the poster for this movie and the one we did the episode on is like just his face. This movie he's in profile, and the one we did is like he's staring straight on. But he looks like I mean, is face. this the type of actor that there's probably even more movies that is just his face? Maybe he's an incredibly bankable actor. An incredibly bankable actor that we've done an episode on that the poster is just his face. Okay. See, we haven't done a lot of dude movies recently. I don't know if I would call this a dude movie, although it is about a dude subject, if that makes sense. Uh, But it's from uh, an angle that, like, dudes wouldn't, don't really want to, like, ponder. Gotcha. So it's like... Is it a sweepy movie? No. Like, is it an emotional movie? It is a movie that has a three-word phrase from the trailer that if I said it, you'd get it instantly. It was like kind of a meme. From the it was trailer. like kind of a meme that went around. Kind of a meme, three words, actor that we've done an episode on. It was on. a Christmas Day release, but like you wouldn't be like, oh, let's gather the family to go see this movie. Christmas Day. Christmas Day 2015. <clears throat> yeah. What the fuck? Um, oh my god, was it an Oscar nominee? No, you can tell that's what they wanted it to be, but it was. It didn't catch on enough for it to... 2015, 2015. Okay, okay, okay. I, I am going to get this. They wanted it to it... be a nomination for this star, for this, you know, this star that I'm not mentioning. 2015 is Spotlight, so it would have opened against Force Awakens. Ah! It's Concussion! Yes, it's Concussion. What got it? Concussion. What got it for you? Star Wars, honestly. What what finally led you to tell the truth about concussion? Ah, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if Gugu plays his wife or not. She she has a different, like I said, a different last name than him. Maybe she plays somebody whose husband never died concussion. of concussion post-concussion syndrome or something like that. Maybe. That's sort of her niche, right? Where if she's Yeah, not... I got that from Star Wars in 2015. Wow, that's really good. Well done. All right, what do you got for me? 
All right, so because this whole episode has basically been and Tom Tickfer, <laughs> I went with a Tom Tickfer actor. Oh um, Tom Tickfer mostly is known to U.S. audiences for uh, like Run Lola Run, but he has also made some like U.S. or like U.S. like familiar movies, namely. One movie I'm thinking of called The International Star. Is it running around the Guggenheim the movie? <laughs> Do they run around the Guggenheim? Isn't that the whole thing movie? where like the whole big set piece is them at the Guggenheim? I think it is. I think you know good god well I did not see the international. <laughs> uh but the international stars Clive Owen and your IMDB game challenge is Clive Owen. Of course it is. Okay, Clive Owen. Clive Owen, who famously, like, (laughs) never had a successful box office play as a leading man, and that is why they stopped letting him be a ladies man. A ladies man. A leading man. Um, (laughs) He can still be a ladies man. He had a glass of Cabossier and (laughs) it away. Okay. Um, All right. I mean, I'm just going to say Children of Men because if I don't, I'll hate myself. So, Children of Men. Children of Men, yes. Good, 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 good. Uh-huh. Clive Owen. Closer? Yes, closer. Closer. He's so good in Closer. Okay. All right. Well, that's off. I'm off to a good start. You are. I'm trying to think of, like, mainstreamy type of stuff that he might have been in. But also, were I Chris File, I don't want to be... Uh, vexed by a movie like Gosford Park, so maybe I'll just guess Gosford Park. You're an evil man. I was trying to trick you and lure you into my former nemesis, Gosford Park. Gosford Park is on there. <sighs> I did not get to trick you. You are currently at a perfect score and <sighs> waiting on one more movie. Oh, and it's probably something dumb. It's probably some dumb Britishy thing too, isn't it? Or like I am not allowed to give you clues at this point. Or like that movie he's in with Jennifer Aniston that I don't know the name of. Um Oh god. Right? I mean that's your answer that no. That it's, it's probably not. not. That, yeah. Okay. Um f- I'm gonna look up whatever Oh, you are thinking of Derailed. Yes, I am. Never saw that movie. Never will. Yikes. Is it his King Arthur? No. Not King Arthur. Okay. <laughs> Remember when we had like three King Arthur movies yes, in the past two years? Yes, I do. Stupid. Um, Including one starring Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> Clive. Good old Clive. Is it Elizabeth the Golden Age? It is not Fuck. Elizabeth the Golden Age. You are going to get the year. It is 2006. So same year as Children of Men. Correct. What else would he have after been his in? Oscar nomination? Right after his Golden Globe win and Oscar nomination for Closer, same year as Children of Men would have obviously come earlier in the year because Children of Men was a December movie. Um, is it like something pretty like mainstreamy? Yes, absolutely. This was a hit. It was a hit. It just wasn't his movie then. Yeah. It was? He's not top build. Yeah. Okay. 
Oh, six. He's second build, but he is not top build. He's not top build. Um, this was this director's highest grossing film. Oh. And like made headlines for being so. Oh. And I think it still has that. So it was like a action like blockbuster title. kind of a thing? Uh, I wouldn't say that. Okay. Oh six, oh six. What happened in oh six? Yada yada yada. Oh, the wait. Go ahead. Oh, all right. Did you have? A I guess? did. I I'll guess before the clue, but I'm probably wrong, and the clue will probably contradict it, and I'll seem stupid. Is it Inside Man? Spike Lee's Inside Man. It's Inside Man. Oh, good. Okay, 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 okay. Spike Lee's Inside Man. It was his highest grossing movie, Denzel wasn't it? Washington. Yeah. Huh? It was his highest yeah, grossing movie. I think it still is. I mean, if that wasn't a... I think it was a February release, actually. If that was a fall release, that could have very potentially been... I awesome. thought it was a summer release. Hold on. Let me look it up. No, late March, you're right. Yep. Talk about divisive performances. People were not universally on board with Jodie Foster in that movie. I loved her in that movie. I thought she was great. I like Jodie Foster in most movies, yeah. even when she's just a Tay in the wind. Ah, <laughs> uh, so good. Excellent work, Chris. Well done. Excellent work. <coughs> Excuse me. Joe, I think we could do a whole second episode <laughs> on Cloud Atlas. I think we got it. I think we I think we got uh, most of it all down. I hope our listeners who voted for it are satisfied. We had a really good time. We love you guys. We hope this episode made you happy. Yeah, happy if you New voted Year, for it, and we doubly hope. Yes, Happy New Year. Uh, hope... We're hoping to have a big 2020. Yes, we really are. It's going to be very fun. Gonna have our... We really appreciate you guys. We hope that this uh, was a fun way for you to like decide what we're doing. Um, even those listeners that did not vote Cloud Atlas, we hope that you were happy with the Cloud Atlas episode. Exactly. Yes. Truly, we had a wonderful time. That is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, tell the listeners where you they can find you and your stuff. You can find me living my best true true on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Um, I am also on Letterboxd under the same name, and I also write regularly for the film experience. Uh, yeah, thank you. I am uh, from womb to tomb. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Both cases, it is spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So give the greater podcasting community the true true and tell them how much you like us, won't you? Thank you. That is. Don't be an old Georgie. Don't be an old Georgie. Remember, we have to all push past the old Georgie sitting on our shoulder. And, uh, and break through to our true selves, our true Sanmi451. That is all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. <laughs> <laughs>